medieval embroidery deserves serious recognition for its unusual place, not only as a status symbol in medieval society, but also the long and colourful history of embroidery itself. Embroidery from this time was exceptional and could be exquisitely elaborate, meaning it could also be time-consuming to produce and expensive to commission or purchase. So it's no wonder there came a time when governing bodies needed to be formed to oversee and help maintain quality and standards, thereby helping to ensure the welfare of businesses and workers within that craft. We've now moved on from that natural human instinct to embellish and decorate our clothing as individuals, to the formation of groups, societies, confraternities or guilds to help navigate and regulate the artistic craft of embroidery right across the medieval world. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Kathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Byzantian Eastern Imperial Workshops often dispatched gifts for distinguished recipients and an extant ceremonial mantle of the Empress Kunigunda, wife of Emperor Henry II, was made by a royal workshop in Regensburg, Germany, sometime in the early 11th century, illustrating the truly remarkable work being carried out in royal or imperial workshops. It's too simplistic to say most medieval embroidery was created and executed in professional workshops, although a great deal must have been. There were well-organised workshops in monasteries and in royal and noble households too, but embroidery was also conducted in private homes by the layperson or someone just trying to supplement their income with much of this work certainly equaling the embroidery produced by the professionals in terms of technique, if not output. Now, in terms of saleability, price setting must have created some challenges. Many embroideries were enriched with small seed pearls and other precious or semi-precious stones, gold or silver ornaments, enamelled plaques and occasionally glass beads and worked on exotically designed and coloured silks and velvets creating an extremely sumptuous and impressive sight. But it must have also cost an extremely sumptuous and impressive penny or two and if you're outlaying good coin of the realm for embroidery encrusted with precious stones and threads of gold 
you'd want to be reassured that there was some sort of quality control in terms of workmanship and materials, right? Absolutely. And of course, the formation of guilds revolved around establishing continuity and reputation, not only for the workshops, but also for the craft as a whole, even then. Embroidery was a solid income earner for workers and businesses alike, but also contributed to the economic prosperity of many others. It may have added to the income of a struggling family. It certainly gave employment to professional workshops who trained aspiring apprentices, ensuring the future of the industry. Plus, it provided family dynasties with the income necessary to enable them to continue to hand down their traditions and techniques from generation to generation. All of these helped provide a living for the merchants who traded the finished embroideries. Then there's the numerous other trades of dyers, illustrators and designers, cloth makers, needle makers, frame makers, the trading ships and their crews, as well as the overland camel trains transporting these embroidered riches to their new homes. There's many ways embroidery can be viewed in a medieval context, but one that's often overlooked is its importance as a major player in the medieval economic structure. But attention needed to be given to the regulation and standardisation of embroidery overall as a craft. I watched a video recently about the House of Lesage in Paris, the peak embroidery house for fashion embroidery, and it was about satisfying, satisfying the needs of their various customers whose requirements are diverse and far-reaching, while at the same time continuing to meet their own high standards, practised since 1924. It's so good to see that, that, that not a lot there has changed. And it's not until sometime in the 12th century, under the Norman monarchs, when we see evidence of the development of both merchant and craft guilds, due to a rapid progress in industry. According to Edwin R. A. Seligman, who in 1887 wrote Medieval Guilds of London. Now, the basic structure required by the European guild system relies on a career chain from apprentice to journeyman to master craftsman, an order which is fairly much retained to this day. Even though in some countries such as Germany and America, guilds, for the most part, no longer exist. A body of English embroiderers was referenced in 1386 when a large number of craft guilds petitioned the king against the growing power of the grocers. Seligman states, The petitioners included the crafts of cordwainers, saddlers, mercers, spurriers, bladesmiths, painters, armourers, embroiderers and founders. And it's this combined power of individuals to support and supplement each other, offering mutual protection as well as interdependence that these early guilds afforded and is the key to the longevity for those that have survived. 
Somewhere along the line, though, there was a realisation that society was changing and as a craft, they needed to develop guidelines and provisions to help meet those challenges head on. Kay Staneland in her book Embroiderers states that by the 14th century, most craftsmen in the capitals of medieval Europe had formed specialist guilds or confraternities with statutes regulating many aspects of their craft. French embroiderers formed a guild in Paris in 1471. However, from around 1292 onwards, it's known that they were a well-organised and disciplined craft guided by statutes. On the other hand, English embroiderers are believed to have had a guild or confraternity in the 14th century and to have drawn up ordinances in the 15th century. Again from her book Embroiderers, Kay Staneland writes, It is indeed curious that the most outstanding period in the history of English embroidery, 1250 to 1350, should coincide with the time when other craftsmen were coming together to form guilds and confraternities, while in London, embroiderers did not yet seem to have felt the need to formalise an organisation that apparently existed informally. Staneland suggests the late formalisation of the London and Paris guilds may have reflected a change in social, urban or commercial circumstances, requiring an established central organisation for each community of embroiderers. The 1292 Paris regulations almost certainly reflected something of the attitudes, working methods and conditions of embroiderers across the major cities of medieval Europe. With these regulations being approved in 1303 by the Provost of Paris, they are the earliest known regulations of any embroiderers in Europe. Staneland has reproduced the Paris regulations in her book Embroiderers, but here's a condensed version. Guild members must know how to practice uh, the craft of embroidery. Only one apprentice may be taken on at a time, and new apprentices can only be taken on when the old apprentice is in their last year, male or female, with male replaced by male and female replaced by female. Apprentices be engaged for a minimum of eight years, although they could stay for longer if they wished. Work was to be carried out in daylight, not by candlelight. Here they state the work done at night cannot be so well or skilfully done as that done by day, and anyone found working at night was fined. No one could work on Sundays or feast days, and if found to do so, was again fined. Male or female apprentices could only be engaged when the person owned a workshop and worked in the craft. No guild member should use gold in their work that costs less than eight sols the rod, for one cannot do embroidery of the appropriate standard with cheaper materials. They were fined if found to contravene this regulation. No man or woman may work in the house of anyone who is not a guild member 
ensuring that work is carried out by those who know their craft. It goes on here about filling the contracts for rich men and that anyone found to be working in a non-guild establishment would be fined. Anyone doing gold thread work shall sew with silk. And lastly, there will be four people sworn to oversee the ordinances of the guild, appointed and dismissed by the provost of Paris. They will report truthfully and faithfully of the malpractices they find, with the oaths of at least three out of the four being believed. There appears to be a determination and dedication towards standards, the fostering of an ongoing training, opportunities for both male and female workers, along with offering some protections for workers and workshops. The statutes were accompanied by a list of 200 names of practising craftsmen, revealing for the first time the extent of male involvement in what had previously been perceived as an almost exclusively female domain, reflecting the attitudes of working practices commonly held in the craft community at the time. Apprenticeships were also rigidly enforced and were seen as a fundamental process of training, the only acceptable route into the craft. The eight years laid down seems a long time, but is actually a reflection of the broad range of techniques needed to be mastered. <clears throat> the size of medieval workshops is unknown, though we can speculate that they must have varied greatly. Larger workshops would have included fully trained embroiderers, along with journeymen and apprentices at various stages of training and may have undertaken ambitious contracts. They had the ability to take on additional workers, yet the 1303 statutes reveal many husband and wife workshops were also operating at this time. Did the large professional workshops employ their own illustrators and artists as designers? Was there a com commonality of repeated design flowing through their work and the embroidery from these workshops? Research couldn't answer these questions, so perhaps it was simply outsourced. All masters and mistresses of workshops had to be established in their craft. That is, they themselves must have served an apprenticeship and have been judged and accepted by their peers. This then was a safeguard for the craft as a whole, as well as those who sought to abuse or neglect their apprentices or who duped them into thinking they were indeed masters or mistresses of their craft. Records unfortunately show this was a necessary precaution. There was also a great level of thought given to the quality of work produced. Staniland writes, Too many apprentices attached to a master or mistress at any one time was seen as detrimental as it would limit the amount of time and attention given to each apprentice and affect the quality of work produced. Apprentices could continue with their master or mistress after completion of their apprenticeship, becoming a skilled valet or journeyman, with the opportunity to become a master or mistress in their own right one year and one day later. According to a post by author and researcher Carol McGrath in 2018, 
Guilds also made provision for widows so that women were able to carry on the family business, a stipulation being that the widow had to have taken part in the workshop for at least seven years before taking over her husband's business. She also suggests that children of both sexes were apprenticed, but gives no indication of age. Opening your own workshop would have been a costly business though, requiring the hiring of premises, the provision of lodging and clothing for apprentices, outlay for materials, along with the costs for wages, all before any income was generated from their first contract. So the family dynasty, where training was freely offered and premises retained, would have been a valuable alternative. An established reputation would have also been a huge asset, as word of mouth was probably even more important then. Many London embroidery workshops of the 13th century were situated around Old St Paul's, where the household dwelling place incorporated the workshop and included the whole family and apprentices. Now, medieval embroidery required good light, which in turn meant stitching during daylight hours. The working day began after sunrise and ended in daylight, and it seems ensuring fine workmanship was paramount, with work done by candlelight being frowned upon. Later provisions, however, approved in 1316 by the Provost of Paris, lightened the restriction on working at night. But only when there was a great urgency to complete the work, along with the assumption that the work was well done, clients could be intolerant of delay. But some of these clients were kings, nobles and prelates, used to getting their own way. Some even established their own embroidery workshops, luring the skilled workers away from the more established workshops, infuriating the embroidery masters by disrupting and delaying their ability to fulfil their own commitments. Even the making of the beautiful gold thread, handmade by spinning narrow strips of gold or silver gilt around a core of silk threads, was a skilled occupation in itself, attracting a higher salary than that paid to embroiderers, who were particularly attentive to the threads they purchased. Patrons paying for the luxury of such exquisite work would not accept poor quality or inferior threads, which would tarnish quickly. These threads were used to enrich the surface of the work, catching the light with every twist and turn. So no doubt through hard experience, cutting costs to achieve a higher profit margin could bring not only their reputation, but, in, uh, but also the entire craft community's reputation into disrepute. Kay Stanlon's book Embroiderers cites one recorded document dating from 1495 set before the London Mayor and Alderman asking for much that had previously been covered by the Paris regulations but also including this. Owing to certain inconveniences that had arisen in the craft their petition had clearly become necessary. These included the employment of foreign non-London embroiderers, faulty work, 
the use of poor quality threads of silk and gold, incorrect measurements for ecclesiastical vestments, and the use of poorer quality gold thread on velvet, satin or damask. So there was a little bit of looking after oneself in there, but still it was about maintaining standards of both materials and workmanship. However, now also includes some form of benchmark standardisation of measurements for ecclesiastical garments. The embroiderers themselves, talking about this poor quality work, apparently asked that all such work be put to the fire. Overseers and inspectors, drawn from the craft itself, kept a sharp eye on standards and malpractices, with punishments meted out rigorously. Half the fines were paid to the king, the other half to the inspectors as part salary for their trouble. Author and researcher Carol McGrath wrote in 2018 that the medieval records to for the Broderers Guild were destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. However, there are records from the 15th century stating that male embroiderers received seven pennies and a farthing to ten pennies and a farthing a day. Women were only paid four pennies and a farthing to six pennies and a farthing, with wages varying according to the embroiderer's qualifications. According to the website broderers.co.uk, the Worshipful Company of Broderers, or the Broderers of the Holy Ghost of the City of London, was formed to promote and protect the art of embroidery, a major city trade in the Middle Ages. Though hard evidence of their existence was destroyed both by the Great Fire in 1666 and bomb damage from World War II, they are thought to have been in existence from the 13th or 14th century. Functions used to take place at the Broderers Hall, originally part of a 10th century monastery at 36 Gutter Lane off Cheapside, until it was destroyed by bombs in 1940. It's the only livery company to have their own master's song, which the master has to sing solo. (laughs) Good on him. The company received a grant of arms in 1558, while Queen Elizabeth I granted its first charter on the 25th of October 1561. So with the formalisation of groups or organisations to regulate and oversee the art of embroidery across medieval Europe, did embroidery flourish? Was there a substantial increase in production? Were workers happier and better looked after? Embroidery certainly continued, but in England after Opus Anglicanum, standards definitely deteriorated. While the standard of European embroideries rose, the implication being that of a passing on of knowledge and skills somewhere along the line. From what I can ascertain, their most important achievement was the setting down of a set of written guidelines for standardisation. Whether this equated beneficially to better outcomes in terms of employment, training or work 
workmanship is hard to determine. Embroidery of a very high technical standard was being produced well before the formation of guilds. But in terms of dispute resolution and quality control, these guidelines for standardisation must have had their benefits. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I just think this time in embroidery history is so fascinating It really seems to have laid the groundwork for much of what we think and know today and that's simply amazing to me. Don't forget to check out the Stitch Safari website, stitchsafari.com and the Stitch Safari Facebook page where I frequently post interesting images and links. Till the next episode, bye for now.